We're going to look at Matthew chapter 20 this morning as we continue in our study together through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 20. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? It's probably not who we will expect. You know, after everything that Jesus has said so far, I think that's a pretty good conclusion. Probably won't be the big celebrity who has been born again recently, probably won't be the most high-ranking political official to name the name of Jesus Christ, probably won't even be a pastor of a mega church somewhere, not that any of those things is wrong in and of itself, we rejoice in all of these people, but the Lord's ways are surprising. And as Jesus says, the first are last and the last are first. The kingdom of Christ is so different from the kingdoms of this world where the most powerful, um, the most outspoken, the most gifted, the tallest, the most handsome of men are the ones who receive all of the acclaim. In the kingdom of Christ, it's very different. And this is, again, the theme that he's been putting forward to his disciples all through this section and will continue to do today. It, it wasn't the young, um, influential moralist of chapter 18, who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, back in the beginning of chapter 18, when Jesus dealt with this question specific, explicitly from His disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember what He did? He brought out a, a little child and He said, this is the greatest in the kingdom of, he- of heaven. <laughs> if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like this little one. Not a person of great renown, not a person of influence, not a person of outsized abilities, but a person with no claim, no position, and no standing in and of himself. The truth is that no one deserves a place in the kingdom of heaven. The story of the day laborers that we looked at a couple of weeks ago makes that point. Each of these receive their reward simply because of the Master's generosity. And really, all are brought into the kingdom on, on, the same, on the same ground. And that is that there's a generous Master. So the first will be last, and the last will be first. Whoever cares the most for the little ones, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But what I want you to see today from the text as Matthew has been inspired to record it is that those principles, the principle of servants being kings, 
and last being first and lowest being the greatest. Those principles are not merely principles. They're not abstract ideas that sort of govern the kingdom. This is the way of the kingdom because it's the way of the king. And the king, in this passage, will explain it from his own lips. King Jesus came to reign, and he reigns by serving. He reigns by laying down his life. That's what our great king did. And so that's what his followers do. For the third time in this uh, gospel, Jesus is recorded as talking to his disciples explicitly about what he came to do. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. This is James and John. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, the other disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. And But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This text contrasts the Spirit of Christ with what is all too often the Spirit of His followers. And as such, it's a warning to us about our own hearts And I think at the same time, an inspiration to us to see the way that we ought to live. And more than anything, it's a glory to us to behold the Savior, the giver of all givers, who laid down His life for His people and thus led the way. This is the text before us, this great contrast. 
Remember, so where Matthew is, we've, we've passed a sort of turning point in the gospel where Jesus had done most of his ministry up in the Galilee area, up in the north, and he had at one point in his ministry sensed that it was the timing of God for him to make a change, to, for him to make a turn. And he turned and began to head south toward Jerusalem. And this was a turn, of course, geographically, but it was, it was more than that. This was a turning point in his ministry missionally in terms of uh, before this, his ministry had been one of preparation, of teaching his disciples about who he was and what his mission was all about in ways that um, exploded their preconceptions about both. And now he's come not to, he, he's turned not to lay the groundwork anymore, but to go forward to fulfill the mission that his father had given him. And that means setting his face toward Jerusalem. And this account, we're told in verse 17, happens as they are now making their way up to Jerusalem. Probably Jesus and his disciples, you can picture them traveling. Um, This is around the Passover time. And so many Jewish pilgrims from all over the scattered provinces would come in big bands and make their way toward Jerusalem for the Passover. And so you can imagine a, a large group of Galilean Jews making their way south along the roads, uh, along the, the Jordan River, making their way toward Jerusalem for the great holy uh, feast uh, of Passover. And so Jesus and, 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 and a great multitude are on this path, but the Bible says that Jesus at some point took his, his 12 apostles, his disciples, he took them aside uh, away from the crowds and he began to... Um, remind them that that something uh, very heavy was awaiting them when they got to Jerusalem. He told them twice before, but, you know, disciples then are like disciples now. We just tend to hear things and it goes right through our heads sometimes or over our heads and we hear only sometimes what we want to hear. In any case, this is the third time now. Jesus has been very explicit with them in terms of what is going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem. And uh, this is the period, the time when he tells them probably in the greatest detail. He says, when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will first of all be suffer betrayal. He will be delivered over by one who lived with him, ate with him, slept together with him and the other disciples. By by one of his closest companions who will turn against him and betray him to his enemies. Jesus said this is exactly what's going to happen. He wants them to know this is not an accident. This is not something that, that is happening to him outside of of his knowledge and even his control. This is all done in obedience to God the Father and the timing of God, and it is going to happen exactly like God uh, had predicted. But it's going to be a very difficult time, a time of betrayal, a time of condemnation by the Jewish authorities uh, in which 
our Savior, the sinless, holy, perfect Son of God, would be numbered with the transgressors because He would bear the sins of many. He would be counted as a common criminal by men whom He had created by the word of His power. And He would lay down His life and submit to that false condemnation. And then He would be turned over to the Gentiles, He told them. This may be the newest uh, bit of information that He gives them in this third declaration about what's going to happen, that he will be turned over to the Gentiles for crucifixion. This, of course, means the Romans. And the Bible tells us that Christ came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. They turned him over to the Romans, and there he said he would face ridicule. He would face extended physical torture, the floggings, the scourgings, and eventually bloody crucifixion would await the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But then he said also he would raise, rise from the dead on the third day. All of this is awaiting him, and, and ever since Galilee, and, and they took a little trip up north, but, but then he turned his face to go south back to Jerusalem, and he has been, imagine this now, with all of this on his mind, that he's just told his disciples that awaits him in Jerusalem, with all of that on his mind, and in his weighing on his soul, he puts one foot in front of another, step by step by step, he makes his way closer and closer, unflinchingly to lay down his life, to suffer and be mistreated at the hands of wicked men. The Bible tells us he set his face like a flint with steely determination, with unflinching commitment. He took one step after another for all of those many miles, closer and closer and closer, to utter abandonment by God and man because of your sin and mine. And he never looked back. He never turned away. He never flinched. What a Savior. What a faithful Savior. He tells his disciples that this is what awaits him. And what happens next is the most jarring juxtaposition of events. Now, two of these men enlist their own mother to help them to gain positions of eminence in his kingdom. In light of all of that he said about what he's about to face and all of the pain and the suffering that awaits him, this is what they're thinking about. God forgive us, you know, for how often that you and I, our minds are in very wrong places at the very point when God is so gracious 
and so merciful to us. And that's where these men are thinking. And I don't know, you know, what it is that they've heard or not heard from the Savior. It's almost as if they haven't heard anything He's just said. Or maybe they're hearing only what they want to hear. You know, they've been hearing Him talk about a kingdom, and He's the king, and of course He's made allusion to Daniel 7 and the the Son of Man will be exalted before the throne of the Almighty God and given a kingdom that is uh, all-encompassing on the face of the earth. They've heard all of these things. In fact, they heard Him recently say, you men will sit on 12 thrones and judge the world with Me. Um, And now, they're headed to the capital city. So, (laughs) uh, maybe all of these things are in their mind if they thought at all about the suffering of Christ that He has just um, put before them, it's been quickly superseded, it seems, by thoughts of what would take place in the kingdom when He's raised. And I think they anticipated that that uh, even if he did suffer and die, that, that when he was raised, the kingdom would come and immediately they would be exalted to great power and visible honor and... So they said, we want to be ready. We want to get our, uh, our place at the table, so to speak. Um, we do the same. We listen to our Lord speak to us through the Word. And how often do I... I, I, I it seems to me that, that hearers come and they hear only little snippets, almost as if they hear what they want to hear, and they go out completely missing the point. You know, I've preached sermons like this where, where I, I've labored to try to understand what the Lord seems to be saying and communicated that to the best of my feeble abilities, and then it seems as if people walk out with an entirely different idea in mind altogether. And You know, I don't... I don't I have enough confidence in the grace and the providence of God to know that God can sometimes be doing a work in the heart that seems very different from what I expected. But, you know, I think some of it is also that we just don't hear the Lord always like we should, like these disciples who just grabbed onto little bits and pieces that they wanted to hear rather than working hard to hear everything that He had to say and submitting to it. It takes careful listening, and it takes a humble spirit for you to come and to sit here and to hear a sermon and really hear everything that God wants you to hear. James and John, uh, after Jesus' uh, foretelling of his his death, they, they come to him and and what, what's really just kind of sad, and, you know, but all too human, is that they think, they hatch this plan. How can we get in good with Jesus? I know. Let's get mom to come and help out. And I think it's very clear that this is a scheme of theirs. Now, I don't mean to slander these men, but I think in the context of the Scriptures, particularly as you compare Matthew to Mark. In Mark, it seems to be all their idea. 
Whereas in Matthew, of course, mom comes first. You put the two together, and I think the idea is that they've put mom up to it. Um, And certainly, even in Matthew's text, by verse 22, Jesus is not responding to mom at all. He's he's directly dealing with these these brothers. They're behind it, obviously. And uh, maybe they thought, you know, if mom comes, then then it'll soften him up, you know. And and, uh, how can you say no to to a godly mother, right? I don't know. But in any case, James and John... Uh, they come to Jesus with this, uh, this petition. Let us sit on your right hand and on your left, these places of honor. Now these guys, you know, they were part of the what seems to be almost like an inner circle of Jesus. I mean, he had his 12 apostles, but on the Mount of Transfiguration, there were only, what, Peter and then these boys, James and John. And uh, they had already had a number of close interactions with Jesus and would continue to have closer um, access to Christ at times than some of the others. But even in the midst of these three, it seems like one of them stood out above the others. And that's not easy, not hard for us to, to see as we've read Peter. Peter stands out everywhere. He's always speaking up. Matthew records the apostles, all of them responding to Jesus. It's usually Peter that's voicing their response. Of course, it was Peter that made the great declaration, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And, uh, And so maybe, you know, I'm reading between the lines here, but I'm reading with a lot of experience of human nature. Maybe there's a little bit of jealousy going on, a bit of envy, and perhaps, remember not long ago, our Lord uh, rebuked Peter for something foolish that he had said, get behind me, he says, calling him Satan even. And, And so maybe these guys see this as their opportunity to step into the gap, so to speak. Here's our, our chance to put our case forward as to why you know, we've, been, we've been most faithful. And I have no doubt that this was not, you know, uh, they thought of themselves as most, the most faithful, the most zealous. It wasn't that they uh, thought that there's maybe something totally um, inherent in them that's better than everybody else, but they, they thought maybe that they had, they had earned it or they had deserved it. They, they, they should have this place uh, next to the Lord. And so they saw their chance to press their case and step up and in front of Peter, maybe. And I, you can't read it, but be convicted with how often you and I are, are envious of others. If we look at someone who is exalted or lifted up, maybe among the people of God, someone who's blessed, someone who seems to have it easier than we do, and to look on them with envy, with jealousy. And maybe it shows when you find yourself secretly happy when someone you envy is rebuked or suffers some kind of setback. And you would never tell anybody else in the entire world, but there's a little part of you that's kind of satisfied. 
So we're a lot like these guys. And, and that's why, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why they're recorded for us, these, these, these flaws of these men. And it is a, a reminder kind of on a side note that God doesn't call us to Himself because we're better than others. God makes us into what He wills us to be by His own mercy and grace. We come broken um, with all of our envy and our pride and our self-seeking. And over time, He breaks that down to make us into the disciples that He intends us to be. Well, they come to Him with their request. Their request is to be on His right and to be on His left. And you have to wonder if they really had any idea what that would mean. In fact, Jesus says, look at what He says next. You don't even know what you're asking. He's explicit with them. He said, Jesus is the king. When the king is lifted up, we want to be on his right and on his left. Are you listening? When the king is lifted up, we want to be on his right and on his left. You know, in fact, the next place that this very terminology is used, on his right and on his left, is when the king is lifted up on a cross with a criminal dying on his right and a criminal on his left. You want to follow the king? You know what it looks like to follow that king? It looks like death. It's suffering. That's what, that's what it means to be on his right and on his left. Jesus says, you don't even understand. You don't understand what you're asking. And then he asks them, are you able to drink of the cup that I am to drink? Drinking the cup. That's sometimes a metaphor in the Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, of blessing. There's a cup of God's blessing. But more often throughout the Scriptures, it's used as a metaphor for suffering. To drink the cup is to experience suffering or judgment from God. God will make His enemies drink the cup of His indignation. And I think that is the way Jesus is using it here. In fact, it won't be very much longer, and you know the story, of course, very well. He's in the garden, and He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass away from Me, this cup of suffering, this cup of righteous indignation. And Jesus asked these men, are you able to, to, to drink that cup that is given to me to drink? And I don't know what, for sure what they thought the cup was, but their quick answer certainly sounds thoughtless. Immediately they say, we are able. Yes, Lord, we can do whatever you can do. We'll follow you. We'll be faithful. And of course, the disciples said that very explicitly in other places. Lord, we will follow you even to death. And of course, when the time came, where were they all? Running scared into the woods. So, so human beings always overestimate their spiritual condition, their strength. 
we say to ourselves, we are able. We are able. The natural man says, I'm able. Do what should be pleasing to God. I'm able. I'm able to be a good enough person. We say, even as Christians, I'm able to do what God wants me to do. And the time comes and we all find that that um, we've had moments like the Garden of Gethsemane when we just turned tail and ran. But we know we should have spoken. and we, we folded our cards and we walked away silently. But Jesus answers them in mercy. And not only does He take their answer at face value, but in fact... He himself is determined to strengthen them to the point where they will eventually be willing to suffer with him. And they will. He says, he says, verse 23, so you will drink my cup. And they will. I mean, they, they won't right away. They're, before before the, the cross and the resurrection, they're going to be running scared. They're going to be hiding from the authorities. They're going to be fearful for their very lives. But the Lord in His mercy, just like He does with every one of us, who says, Lord, we're able, and we find out we're not able. In His mercy, He works on us, and He works on us, and He strengthens us, and He shows us Himself, and He does a work in our hearts until little by little we find that our strength has grown, and it is His strength in us, and we find that we're able to do what we never were able to do. And these men stand. James is martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 12 tells us about that martyrdom, standing boldly for Jesus. And John, we find by the end in in Revelation, is a prisoner, is in exile, possibly, uh, tradition tells us, even tortured for the cause of the Savior and the cause of His Gospel. Standing firm, good men that we're going to be just amazed at in, in glory. The, the, the grace of God did such a dramatic change. And you know, that's what gives us hope, isn't it? That the grace of God changes men who once thought they were able and failed miserably into people who were actually faithful to the very end. And boy, I pray that God will be so faithful in me and in you and make of us what are clearly trophies of His mercy and grace and power. Jesus says, you will, you will in fact drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. I think this is Jesus' way of saying to the disciples, boys, this is not something you need to be concerned about. Your place, your ranking in the kingdom is not something to be focused on. You leave that to the Father. This is not something that the earthly Christ is authorized to reveal to them. And there are plenty of times we want to know things. God should tell us how life is going to work. 
make it clear the things that we wonder about. And sometimes God just tells us, it's not for you to know. You know, you know what you need to know? These words, follow me, follow me, be faithful to me. Jesus says, it's not mine, uh, not been given to me to tell you, it's not yours to wonder about. You leave that to God, but it doesn't take too deep of an understanding of human nature to imagine the response of the other disciples to these two boys. If you've ever been in a class with that one good kid who always does his homework and spoils it for everybody else, or maybe you've been around the person who always pushes himself forward um, and you roll your eyes or uh, you just, you know, we, we know people like that. We know ourselves. We know the disciples. It's not hard to see what's going on in them when the Bible says in verse 24 that when the 10 other guys heard it, they were indignant. And they're not angry because James and John are stepping out of their place and they're sorry for their souls and they want to see. This is not righteous indignation, right? This is anger that I didn't get there first. And how dare these guys try to step into what may be my place or, or his place. I mean, these guys, what do they think? Who do they think they are? Anger. And the truth is that even if these other ten disciples were not as outwardly ambitious as James and John, they still had, every one of them, self-seeking hearts. And maybe these guys are more uh, instructive for us than James and John, because probably few of us can imagine ourselves being like James and John and putting ourselves forward in such a visible way and saying, oh, me first. But most of us can probably imagine ourselves being one of the other ten, going, jerks. Yeah. Why? Not because, not because, because we want to be there, if we really could. Yeah. That's us. These men, though not outwardly egoistic like the other two, cherish their own secret ambitions as we do. As we make inner comparisons in our heart of hearts with this brother or that sister. And we think envious thoughts that we would never disclose to even our dearest friend, but the Lord who knows all hearts sees us for what we are. So Jesus' response in verse 25 to what He knew to be in these hearts is this. He says to them, he calls them all, hey guys, all these other ten, all of them. And he says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles behave this way. They lord it over those under them. Their great ones 
they exercise authority down over them. Both of these words have the word, the little prefix down in them. There's a, there's a top-down sort of, of, a, of authority. Someone on high is, is taking these others and putting them down um, and, and exercising his dominion over them. That's the way it is in the world, Jesus said. You know that. You don't have to look around very far. But he said there's a contrast between the world and the church. The world has its, as Jesus says in verse 25, their great ones. Remember what the church is made up of? Little ones. Jesus said, unless you become like a little one, you can't get into the church. The world has its authority that's wielded top down. The church is built bottom up. When every one of the people of God considers himself or herself to be a servant, or a slave. I mean, Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, really heightens it here. Verse 26, It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. I mean, if servant's the word for like deacon, where we get the word deacon, and that's a that's a, someone who's supposed to be a servant, a servant of the elders, a servant of the church. But Jesus says, you, gotta, you go beyond that. You just, you're, you're a slave. Slave is a person who is, who's literally has, has no um, right of self-determination at all. I mean, he is totally under the authority of someone else. His uh, agenda is set by his master. Jesus says, that's the way to think of yourself in the body of Christ. You men, look at the others. Those are your masters. You serve them. You meet their needs. You look after, you attend to them like a good servant attends well to his master. And, and, and they might say, well, which one? <laughs> he says, you're all the servants. You're all the slaves. There are no masters among you. There are only slaves. There are all slaves and all masters. They all serve one another. This is the way it is in the kingdom of Christ. It's built bottom up. Not by lording authority over others, but by serving, meeting needs, blessing, giving, 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 giving. Even pastoral authority, okay, in a congregation. Even the authority of a pastor is not wielded from above. It's not the way the church works. My job is to serve you by carefully explaining and pressing the words of the Savior Himself and demanding that we all submit to Him, the one and only Lord. As the Apostle Peter will later write to other pastors, in 1 Peter 5 he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, he says to these pastors, but doing it eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when your chief shepherd shall appear, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then he says to all of the rest in the congregation, likewise, you younger, be subject to the elders and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility one toward another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who's exalted? It's the one who humbles himself. He serves his fellow Christians. He serves the other disciples. The natural pecking order of the world. The natural pecking order of socioeconomic classes. The natural pecking order of the school playground. The natural pecking order that we see in the workplace of the world doesn't have the same place in the church. Wealth shouldn't carry sway among us. Strong personality must never dominate. The most popular among us should be the ones who seek out the most needy. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. If you want to excel in anything, excel in getting low. As Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Reach out. Brothers and sisters, reach out, reach down to those in need, to those who need care. Not just simply to your best friends. That's how churches become cliquish. But reach out and reach down to those on the fringes. There's plenty of time to enjoy your closest friends. There's nothing wrong with that. Look around for those in need of grace, for those who need special encouragement, for those who need some help that you can give. Some of us never reach out beyond ourselves. Some people I see come and go in church never seem to ever, that I'm aware of, I'm not omniscient, but as far as I'm aware, I've seen some people come and go who've never tried to serve others. Never gone out of their way, it seems, to meet somebody else's need. And I would admonish you to repent and confess your sin before God. Many, many of you, I do find out, I do hear every now and then, probably not everything certainly, but I do hear of your meeting others' needs, of your serving others, laying, laying yourself out for somebody else being low in the face of somebody else's irascibility, serving one another. And to you I say, may that grow. May that spirit grow. Learn to measure your success by the happiness 
and the growth and the good of others. Let that be the measure of how successful you are in the kingdom of God. How much is my neighbor growing? How much is he giving praise to God because I was able to meet a need to serve him, to give up my money because it's not my money, I'm a slave, to bless, to serve, to further the work of the kingdom. But I remind you once again that this principle of service and humility is not an abstract principle of the kingdom of God. This is the way of the king. And so Jesus says explicitly again in verse number 27, this is the highlight of the whole passage, come back down to it, verse number 27, whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is our captain, our leader, our Lord who is the example himself, supreme example of what it means to be a humble servant who lays down your life for your people. Jesus is the example. He himself is going to show these men the way. While they're still falling back and pushing themselves forward and and thinking about themselves and protecting themselves and isolating themselves to to a degree from one another, he's going to be at the vanguard pushing forward. He's going to be the first only one right out there. You know what it's like to be way out there in the lead on this thing? It's a very lonely place and Jesus is going to be there. And he says to them, follow me. This is what it looks like to be in my kingdom. This is the way my kingdom goes forward. By self-sacrifice, by service. He says two things about his sacrifice, and we're almost finished. Two things about his sacrifice in verse 27 that I want you to see. Number one, that there is something unique about Christ's sacrifice. It is unique. It is one of a kind there is no, none of our sacrifice will ever measure up to this because he says, I came, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. What's a ransom? A ransom is a price you pay to buy something, to buy it out of difficulty usually. I mean, we, we use, mostly use the term with regard to hostage negotiations, right? And someone is taken captive and, and a ransom is demanded. And, and that's probably not a far afield from the way it was used, or at least the connotation of the word in, in Jesus' day. It was often used um, as a price that was paid to buy a slave. And many times, someone was buying a slave in order to set them free. It was the price of their liberty. In that sense, is very akin to what we think of when we think of a ransom. The, the root of this word is the first Greek word that any Greek student learns when he's learning Greek. It's the word luo. It's kind of a, uh, an example word that, uh, by which you learn to do all of your declensions and things like that. Um, your conjugations. So the, this word means to loose, to set free. 
So, so often it was used to, to buy something out of, uh, to buy a slave out of its slavery, or in the context of the Old Testament, the price that you would pay to buy your land back that belonged in your tribe that had somehow gotten, um, gotten uh, away from you, and to restore it, to, to set the land free from its own bondage, as it were. You, you paid a ransom, you paid the price. And this is all of the background for this word that, in fact, the word is also closely related to the word redemption, which is, of course, exactly what our Lord came to do. It was not uncommon for people to be enslaved in the Roman Empire, not primarily as much a race-based slavery as we might think of, but slavery for debt or slavery as... as, uh, the losers in a war, and you were made a slave. And, and there are lots of records of early Christians paying great sums to redeem or to ransom other believers out of slavery, actually. But here is our Lord doing something that is far beyond any mere earthly deliverance from slavery Christ has come to deliver His people from a spiritual and eternal slavery. Without Christ, every one of us was in a kind of a slavery. And you're going to have to humble yourself to realize this. The Bible teaches that before Christ, or if you're outside of Christ, you're in a kind of a spiritual slavery to your own sin. That's not so obvious to a lot of people. They think, well, I'm free. Jesus talked to many people in His day who said, we are free, we've never been slaves to any man. And He said, you are slaves because you do what is in your own evil heart to do. You do, you go your own way. And if you give yourself to your own way, then you're a slave to that. You are a spiritual slave, not free to serve God with joy and love and faith, but a slave to your own self. Jesus said, you are a slave. You are indebted to God with a debt that you could never repay. You owe God everything. And the wages of your sins against God is death. You are under a slavery that will end in a death and eternal separation from God. That's the kind of slavery the Bible sees as the greatest of all slaveries, beyond any human slavery. But Christ, He says... The Son of Man came to give His own life as a ransom to buy us out of slavery. Christ saw His people down here in our poor, pitiable condition, enslaved and hopeless to extricate ourselves. And He was moved with compassion. And because His nature is love, He, God, gave Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ came into this world, made Himself lowly, took upon Himself the form of a servant, was gracious to come for those who were needy and could never repay Him and never hope to benefit Him in any way. He died to ransom, to redeem the many to Himself. Uh, Does that include you? Well, it does if you will humble yourself and confess your sin against a holy God and cry out to God to save you for the sake of Jesus Christ. And you would know what compassion is. You would know what freedom is. I mean, the kind of freedom that 
that feels like, I don't know, a new life. It's like you're born all over again. It's like you're, you're, you're starting over. It's, it's, it's a new freedom in the presence of God that's motivated by love and joy and amazement at His kindness. Give your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Listen, if you're here without the Lord Jesus, confess your sin and call out to Him to be your Savior. He paid a ransom so that sinners may be saved, that you may be redeemed and set free. It's a freedom that you will uh, never imagine and experience in any other way but through the Lord Jesus Christ. So I say there is something unique about His sacrifice, but then... Finally, I want to say this, that there is something exemplary about it as well. It is unique, but in a manner, we can emulate it. Jesus tells us as much. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man laid down His life. You lay down your life for the people of God. You and I are called to give ourselves for others like Christ has served us. Not a sacrifice that ransoms people, but a sacrifice that points people to the great ransom that has been paid in the blood of Jesus Christ. By serving, by by Christians laying down their lives for the sake of the one who laid down his life, they bring that ransom right down to the people who see it and hear it and experience it. It is not their work that ransoms, but through their work, the one who ransoms makes himself known and brings a people to himself through his own children, through his disciples. And what a glory it is that by serving one another, we may bring glory to our Savior. Amen? What, a, what more would you want to live for than to have your people think highly of your Savior? So lay down your life for His people. Give it up for them. Serve one another. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we bow our knee before You and acknowledge that You are the supreme giver of the universe. You are the greatest example of sacrifice. And Your sacrifice has redeemed us and brought us to God and set us free. And we bless You. We praise You for it, Lord Jesus. Forgive us for our self-seeking, our pride, Forgive us for the many, many ways that we have put ourselves first. We've been envious and bitter against others. We just ask that you teach us to walk behind you into the suffering and into the sacrifice. We are confident that there lies before us a great joy, just as there was for you. Please, Manifest Yourself in us and glorify Yourself. Glorify the Son, we pray, O Father, in Jesus' name.